0: Let's pray together. Father, as we gather within the quiet and shelter of these walls this evening, we would express collectively our desire to hear you. And we would confess that there are many sounds in our lives and that it is often difficult to tune our hearts in such a way that we are hearing your voice, absorbing what you are revealing and responding. So toward that end, we pray that in these moments, your Holy Spirit would speak with clarity and that we'd be granted the privilege of not only hearing, but give us the grace to respond, Father. We're mindful, maybe more than ever, that in our own lives and certainly in our city and our world, there's a profound need for the hope and peace and light found in Christ. So speak to us now, Father. We're grateful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And good evening, and we're continuing, as you know, if you're here now, on, in a series, Advent, called Coming to Our Senses, Taste, Sight, and this evening, Sound. I want to thank our tech team for the sound effect reading uh, this evening, because we were trying to offer supplementary sounds for reasons that will become clear as we go through this. Jesus uses a phrase several times in his ministry— and this is a phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. He says it seven times in the Gospels, and then it's this, the, the phrase is used again in the book of Revelation when Jesus is speaking to seven churches through uh, John the Apostle in a, in, a, in a dream. He who has ears, let him hear. It seems on the surface to me to be a bit of a silly phrase because if I have ears, don't, don't I hear, Right? However, let's just pause for a minute. Let me ask a question. How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you're married. Some of you are Quite a few of you are married. So how many of you who are married feel as if your spouse always hears you? Keep your hands raised if that's true. Does your spouse always hear you? There's, not, there's one hand raised, but she's lying, I think. <laughs> if you're a manager, raise your hand if you feel like your employees always hear you. The laughter, do you love that? And, and if you're an employee and you feel like you're in a, your manager always hears you, would you raise your hands? Ah. <laughs> you're, you're getting my point that uh, we don't always feel heard. And if we don't always feel heard, then if we flip the coin on its head or its tail, depending on your perspective, it's, it's equally true then that we don't always hear, right? If we don't always feel heard, it's because some people aren't listening apparently. And so let's have the humility to grant uh, at least the possibility that we also don't always hear. And this evening, the topic is learning to hear God and listen for the voice of God. How do we hear God? That's the question on the table. It's a very important question because if you're here at Bethany or you've been here any length of time at all, you'll know that I have a little phrase that I say over and over and over and over again. And the phrase is this, all transformation comes about as a result of response to revelation response to revelation leads to transformation. And so there's revelation, I receive it, what I do, depending on what I do with it, as I receive that revelation, as I receive and respond to that revelation, it's that response that leads to my transformation. And so, if I'm moving from darkness to light, if I'm moving from anxiety to peace, if I'm moving from sadness to joy, then it is absolutely incumbent upon me that I be not only receiving revelation, but responding to revelation. And if I can't hear what God is saying, then I can't respond. So, it all starts with hearing, right? And, and sometimes, Christians tend to think, oh, absolutely, Richard, I completely agree with you. Here's the problem. God doesn't talk to me. I mean, I don't know what God is saying, right? And I'm going to suggest at the outset this evening that uh, the problem is never that God is not speaking. That has never been the problem. Psalm 19 says that the heavens our preaching. So if we learn to read creation, God is speaking to us through creation. God is speaking to us. God has given us a text. God is speaking through the text. God is speaking through conviction of the Holy Spirit, John 14, John 15. God is speaking through the circumstances of life. James chapter 1, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. God is speaking through your trials, through your joys, through your sorrows, through your experiences, through, through creation, through text, through teaching, through music. God is speaking. No problem. The problem is not that God doesn't speak. The problem is we, like we don't always hear, Jesus had an indictment on the religious people who studied their Bibles extensively, almost, I would say, and it sounds heretical for a preacher to say this, almost excessively they studied their Bibles. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, here's your problem. You have ears, but you what? Don't hear. You have ears, but you don't hear. It's a huge problem. So the question on the table for this little moment here that we have together, what does it mean to hear God? And how do we learn to hear God? And the principles that we will discover come from really basically three observations that I'm going to make uh, here, or at least three categories of observations uh, in, in this text. It's a well-known text, but here's the observations. Observation number one, the story that we look at is filled with sounds. We heard it already read with sound effects. The story is filled with sound. That's the first observation. The second observation, the story behind the story is filled with pondering and telling. Mary ponders this stuff. The shepherds tell the things that they've seen and heard. So the story that, uh, behind the story is filled with pondering and telling. And third, there's some application we need to look at as we close. Stories story is filled with sounds, The story behind the story is filled with pondering and telling, and this leads us to some application that will then lead us beautifully and appropriately to the Lord's table here in a moment. So let's begin with the story itself. The story is filled with sounds. And under the category of the story is filled with sounds, there's two kinds of sounds in the story. If you read the story, the first part of the story is filled with ordinary sounds, and the second part of the story is filled with extraordinary sounds, okay, Ordinary, extraordinary. And what do I mean by ordinary sounds? Well, there's a decree, right? Caesar Augustus. Hey, everybody needs to go to the town of their birth. And if you're married, it would be the head of households town. And so that would be Joseph. And so you have to go to that town to register there in a census. We're cleaning up the tax rolls. We want to increase our revenues by making sure that everybody's paying taxes. Nobody's slipping through the cracks. Census. So there's a decree. And then after the decree, there's all the sounds of travel because people are migrating all over the Holy Land, going to their uh, uh, town or city or place of origin, right? And, and so there's these sounds of travel. And the travel is significant here because it's the travel that leads to a uh, fulfillment of prophecy given by the prophet Micah. Micah predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born in, of all places, Bethlehem, right? And, of course, for that to happen, jo- Joseph would to go to Bethlehem, and it's Caesar who makes this this, uh, uh, there's this decree, this taxation decree, and this, this census being taken, and so uh, that creates the movement whereby Jesus ends up being born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, which is a significant. Christ, as we saw last week, the bread of life. So, uh, sound of decree, sound of travel, we, and we have sounds of travel, right? Do you know what the sound of travel is if you're on I-5 between 85th and downtown at any time of the day or night, it's the sound of cars not moving. I have discovered this. <laughs> this is amazing to me because it does not matter when, like when I'm trying to go home because I live up on I-90, I go, oh, I'll wait till 8.30 p.m. Doesn't matter. Still, the light is on, you know, at the, on, the, on the on-ramp, like, you must wait forever, dun, dun, dun. And the cars are parked. This is the sound of travel in our community, but I digress. So we'll get back to the text now. Uh, because there's then the sound of looking for lodging and finding none. And that is significant, but it's not our sermon this morning, but this notion that nobody has room for God, and part of the reason no one has room is they don't know it's God, and part of the reason they don't know it's God is because God shows up in unlikely places. But again, not the sermon this evening, so we'll go on. But it's this, the sound of not finding lodging, no room here, no room here, no room here, and then the sound of birth interwoven with the sound of animals, Because of the lodging problem, so Jesus ends up being born in a stable or a cave or where it is and laid to rest literally in a feeding trough. That's the story, right? So all kinds of sounds. No, we don't have any room tonight. I'm sorry. We're all full up. Sounds of travel, sounds of decree, sounds of why Do we have to go when I'm pregnant? All those sounds. And they're all actually very normal. This is just normal sounds. And yet what's significant for us to just pause and recognize Is that the sounds of this story, you know, and Linus reads this story in the Peanuts Christmas special, right? These very normal sounds, Mary heard them and remembered them. And decades later, she shares this story with Luke, the physician, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke, who then writes the words down. So here we are in Seattle 2,000 years later thinking about no room in the inn. And this is really actually quite significant because when there's no room in the inn, Mary doesn't know what's going to be happening. She doesn't really actually, I mean, she knows that this is Messiah, but she has no idea of the weight and significance of the event. It's the kind of event that you don't know the significance of until after. Does this make sense? And and yet it's significant, and so she remembers it, and she articulates it, she absorbs it, she tells it, other people hear it, other people record it, and now we're telling it now. And so there's a very important application here, because this first half of the story, very normal sounds in a very seemingly normal story, and I'm just going to say to you, normal sounds matter. In other words, you know, God never speaks to me, oh yes, God does speak to you. God speaks to you uh, when, in uh, the oncology word, the test comes back positive and you have to deal with it. God speaks to you when your manager says, we have to cut our budget by $200,000 this year. God's speaking to you. God speaks to you when you got accepted into a grad program, when you got rejected from a grad program. God speaks to you... In every single situation, God is speaking, and so we must learn to kind of listen and ask the question continually, what is God saying to me in this moment? Because in reality, there are no insignificant moments if we attune our hearts to listen for what God is saying in particular moments. This, I, this is a very important principle because functionally, I think many of us in the room are Gnostics. Do you know what I mean by Gnostic? Like we've divided our world into spiritual reality and the rest of life. And we who think that way at times, we go, oh, yeah, you know, I know God does speak. Here's where God speaks. God speaks in the Bible. And so I open my Bible in the morning if I have that kind of a habit. And I read my Bible while I eat my Cheerios. And then I, you know, I study. I write a journal or something. And then I get on the freeway. And now it's my, it's, this is reality. And this is spiritual stuff. This is for later when I die or when I get home from work. And then there's work. And this is a battle. And I'm on my own. And it's upward mobility. And it's the highest, you know, productivity for the cheapest price, and that's the way the world works. No, God doesn't speak there. God speaks here. No, God speaks everywhere. Classic examples in the Bible is found in 2 Samuel um, uh, 16, verses 5 and 4. You read the story. If you know your Old Testament, David was one of the great kings of the Old Testament. But if if you really know your Old Testament, you know that David's son, Absalom, Exacted a coup and stole the throne from David. Did you guys know that? So so David's out, Absalom's on the throne, and David's being literally run out of town. Now, David, uh, he was anointed king, and then uh, Saul at the time was king when David was anointed king, so Saul hated David, and Saul's family hated David's family. So, this is a a great drama. And, And now, Absalom's on the throne. And Saul's, uh, excuse me, David's being run out of town. And as he's leaving town in disgrace with his quote-unquote mighty man, these are the guys who stuck with him through thick, th- thick and thin. As he's leaving town, this is what it says. Uh, this guy named Abishai uh, is one of David's mighty men. And, a, and another guy, Shimmy, is a relative of Saul. Shimmy sees David, right? And he's like, okay, I'm going to pay him back. And he starts throwing rocks at David. I don't know if he's left-handed, but I am. So that's how this works. Bam, bam, you know, he's throwing rocks at David. Oh, look at this. And now I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he says. You loser, God's paying you back because you stole the throne from Saul and now your son's, you. You're, you're, look, everything that's happening you, you deserve, boom, boom. And he's throwing rocks at him and says he was cursing him, right? So Abishai, David's assistant, like he sees this going on, and this is Abishai. He says, hey, just say the word. I'll go cut his head off. Do you love that? It's in the Bible. Yeah, it's right there. It's like that's the 7th century version of tweeting, in my opinion, right? You know, I'm just going to cut his head off. Problem solved. And so he says that to David. And then this is what David says. And now I'm, not, now I'm not paraphrasing. I'm quoting. If This is what David says. If the Lord has told him to curse me, then why would you stop it? What? Like, David, did you not have devotions this morning or something? Like, why would you say that? Here's why. Because God is speaking in every situation. And so David has the humility to always be asking this question. Rather than first to blame, first to exact revenge, first to exact vengeance, David is first to ask with humility this question, what is God teaching me in this moment? Boy, we could stand to learn that, all of us in the room, right? Right? Because God is always speaking. God is speaking the hard conversation and the easy one. God is speaking the encouraging word and the discouraging word. God is speaking uh, when we hear things we want to hear and when we hear things we don't want to hear. God is teaching us things because God is speaking in traffic, in physicals, in medical situations, in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the bedroom, God's speaking. We need to learn to listen. In 2013, uh, I flew home late on Friday night after teaching on the East Coast, got up early on Saturday morning. I was in an interview here for like three or four hours, an opening on staff, and I took the candidate to lunch. I'm over here at Duke's. Do you know it? Right down the street here. I think Bethany supports Duke's basically because it's so close, so I'm there half the time. And so anyway, I'm over there at Duke's and it's, it's August, I'm out on the patio, it's lunchtime. My phone rings. I look at it, it's the number plus 49, which is Germany. I go, oh, it's my daughter. <coughs> oh, Christy, I just didn't even wait for anybody to talk. I just said, Christy, I'll call you later. I'm in a meeting. She says, well, it's not her. She, it wasn't Christy. It's my friend Peter. The phone says, it's not Christy. This is Peter. I said, I'll call you later. He says, no, i got to talk to you right now. Really? Yeah, he said, uh, where are you? I said, I'm at a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, step away from the table. He says, you know, uh, Hans-Peter died today. They found his body at the base of the rocks, a hang gliding accident. One of my best friends. (laughs) So I'm sitting here, and now this guy is gone. And I'm thinking about his wife and his children. He was five years younger than me. All of his children Two daughters and a son just like me, same order, all five years younger than my kids, all of us friends, sharing life together, and I started crying. And I went and sat back down at the table, and I said, One of my best friends just died. I told the guy that I was there having an interview with. And that phone call for me uh, changed many things in my life. My wife and I had long conversations after that phone call do you realize that you really actually never know when you're going to die? What are we not doing that we need to be doing? And it changed our priorities. And it changed some things about my relationship with God. God is speaking all the time. It's incumbent upon us to listen. It's a very ordinary sound. I mean, your cell phone. I'll never forget that cell phone ringing (laughs) and seeing that number 49. It was important in my life. So, what does God try to teach you in the very normal sounds of your day? I think we should always be asked this question, what is God saying? Now, the second half of the story here is filled with extraordinary sounds. We're still under this rubric of the story filled with sounds, but the second half of the story filled with extraordinary sounds. So, when you read verses 9 to 13, this is all about angels speaking to shepherds, right? And the vital first word from the angel, don't be afraid, and of course they would be afraid because it's an unusual sound. But immediately, the angel says, look, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you glad tidings. Good news, right? Good news. And then he says that this good news will bring great joy. It's great joy for all people. Good news, great joy, all people. And the news has to do with deliverance. Uh, Salvation, the word salvation, sozo. Also, it really means to deliver. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's interesting here, uh, in, this, in this second half story, you have a juxtaposition of an extraordinary messenger and, and like very, very ordinary people. The shepherds were the least one of the two least likely people groups that should receive this message. I don't know what you know about shepherds in that culture, but uh, shepherds were low enough on the social scale that their testimony was, like the testimony of women in first century Rome, unacceptable in a court of law, like they were viewed as uh, incredible, right? And if you've ever, uh, who sat on a jury in here? Anybody ever sat on a jury? You sit on a jury, you know what happens sometimes when a witness is brought forward, uh, particularly if what they have to say is poignant or powerful uh, on behalf of one or the other parties. The other party will seek to impinge the character of the witness, right? So that if, like, if I can make you less credible, then maybe people will doubt. And what's interesting to me is if I'm God and I go, okay, I'm going I'm to you know, deliver this message and have the first, who's going to fir- who be the first people that preach this message? I've got an idea. Uneducated shepherds who no one listens to. Like, why would God do that? And here's my answer. The reason God would do that is because the fact that that is how the story unfolded and was written, in my view, gives credence to the story, makes the story true. Does this make sense? Like, if you're selling something, you use people of high credibility. This is why, you know, Beacon Plumbing had Marshawn Lynch forever, right? You don't pull somebody off the streets who's living in an hourly motel and say, hey, would you be my spokesman? for my plumbing part, You just don't do that. I mean, that sounds a little crass, I realize, but the, the point is what? Like, I'm looking for a credible witness. By the way, I've always wondered why football players are credible related to plumbing, but that's a different story entirely. So I want a credible witness. Yeah, let's find somebody, you know, public high profile. Yeah, I've got an idea. Let's find shepherds. The fact that God does it that way both gives credibility to the story and says something significant. Yes, indeed, this message is for who? All people, especially people on the margins. And then post-resurrection, the first, the first evangelists were women, the other group whose testimony was inadmissible in a court. So when people ask me, why do you believe? And when Bill Maher says, oh, yeah, the Bible, fairy tales, ha, <laughs> ha, and he mocks Christianity... I go, no, if, like, if I were trying to make this up, those are not the witnesses I would choose. There's weight of truth to the testimony here. These very, very extraordinary sounds received by the shepherds, right? And uh, so this becomes significant as well. And now we move on because I want to show you this very important, the story behind the story. Okay, this happened. And we all know the story. But the significance here, the story behind the story is this. The, the story behind the story is filled with pondering and telling. And so we're going to look at the, the, the telling first. We're going to look at the shepherds. And I'm going to make some observations about the shepherds. It says in verse 17 of the text, the shepherds, quote, made known what they had seen. And then in verse 20, they were glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen, Right? So let me make some observations here about the shepherds. First, I want you to notice this. The shepherds didn't just hear, they responded. And this is hugely significant. They didn't just hear, they responded. In other words, when they heard this, hey, there's a Savior's been born. It's a baby. He's in Bethlehem. He's lying in a manger. Go there, you'll find him. The shepherds weren't like this. Interesting. We took notes. We talked about it. Uh, hence, we're mature saints. No. <laughs> Look. What made this real in their lives was hearing coupled with what? Response. In other words, immediately when they heard it, what did they say? Let's go! Like we want to hear in reality this baby crying because we've heard this angel. And this is very important because it says in James chapter 1 look, prove yourselves if you're Christ followers, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not hearers only, because hearers only is very important. Hearers only do what? Deceive themselves because I equate hearing with maturity. I come, I listen, I take notes, hence I'm mature. No, you're not. Maturity doesn't come from hearing, it comes from doing. And What we see in the scriptures over and over again is that the problem isn't that we have a shortage of revelation, it's it's that we have a shortage of response to revelation, and when I hear revelation, when God speaks to me, and I don't listen, what's happening, according to Hebrews chapter 3, is I'm hardening my heart. Because it says in Hebrews 3 this, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. So what does that mean, to harden my heart? It means this, God has spoken and now I'm under conviction, the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, Richard, you actually need to start giving. Or you need to forgive that person, or you need to have that hard conversation. Richard, this is your next step. You need to do it. Now, when I, if I hear that and I don't respond, then the text tells me what? What's happening to me by not responding is I'm hardening my heart. And the, only, the best way to describe the hardening of the heart in, in our text this evening is we become hard of hearing. Like hard of heart is equivalent to hard of hearing, and what do I mean by hard of hearing? Well, if you're older in the room, you know this. Like as we get older, we actually do begin to lose our hearing. Okay, I'm 60. I played the drums for years, and so now uh, my hearing's okay, I think. But when I'm in a like a room with a lot of people talking, it I, it's annoying to me. And my mom, when my mom died at 95 last five years of, his, of her life, she would say this to me. I'd go down to Fresno and visit her. She'd say, how come everybody mumbles these days? Why does everybody always mumbling? Can't hear a thing anybody's saying. And I'd be like this, mom, they're not mumbling. You're hard of hearing. You know, and I would say it like that. And she would be like, yeah, I guess so. I am 95, right? So as you, like, as you get older, you, it's harder to hear. Well, the same principle kicks into play here, Hebrews 3. Today, if God speaks to you, about money, about sex, about marriage, about celibacy, about, about vocation, about anything, and you don't respond, God doesn't speak any softer tomorrow, but you have a harder time hearing. And then if you don't respond, it's harder still. Harder still. And if you keep not responding, Does that make sense? No? That's because you're hard-hearted. <laughs> you can't hear. <laughs> Do you see? Like, if, if God speaks and we don't respond, then we lose our capacity to respond. Conversely, with the shepherds, God spoke, they did respond, and so what happened? They received even what? More revelation. They saw the baby, they went home, they glorified God now, not only for what they'd heard, but for what they had seen, So it is vital that we prove ourselves to be not only hearers of the word, but doers. And over and over again, we see in the scriptures that because we are sons and daughters of Adam, we are prone to reject the revelation that comes from God. In other words, God says things to us, and we like to pick and choose. Yes, I like this part of the message, but this part, no, no, thank you. I'll pass on that. I don't like broccoli, Jesus. Thanks very much, and uh, I'm not interested right? No, look, as soon as we reject Revelation, we begin the hardening of the heart, and what's insidious is that we become blind even to our own blindness. So much so, I mean, uh, Stephen uh, gives illustration of this in Acts chapter 7, because he's speaking to the Pharisees in Acts 7, and they're these religious leaders, and he's kind of, some of the Christians are on trial because they're accused of speaking against the temple, and then Stephen basically Gives this synopsis of the whole Old Testament in Acts 7 in the sermon. And then here's his, this is his punchline. Here's what he says. He says, look, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? It's a very pointed statement. In other words, in the Old Testament, uh, what happened? Well, Isaiah, you know, saw in him too. Jeremiah, thrown in a pit. Amos, his ministry rejected. You know, Ezekiel was mocked. Which one of your fathers, excuse me, which one of the prophets did your fathers not not reject outright? And then, and then Stephen says, and now you've rejected Christ. And he says, you guys are always resisting the Holy Spirit, never listening. And you know what it says? Acts 7.52, read it. It says, and immediately, I love this, You're, you never listen. And then the text says, and so immediately they covered their ears. Do you not find that hysterical? Like, I'm charging you with not listening, and you're like this. Oh, yeah, I'll show you. And you cover your ears. And they picked up rocks, and they drove out of the temple, and they killed him. Hard-hearted? Oh, yeah. But they had Bibles. Having ears? They didn't hear. So when God is speaking, you know it. Good to respond. Now, God speaks to us through the word. God speaks to us through conflict. God speaks to us in all kinds of situations. But in this case, God is speaking to the shepherd, good news, great joy, all people. And the response, so the the revelation led the response, the response led to an experience and more revelation. Let's go see, verse 15. And then once they've seen, they want to tell other people about what they've seen and heard. And what I love here that's significant is their message is rooted in their experience. And let me just share why this is so significant in our own age. We live in a postmodern age, right? And if you don't know what I mean by that, I'll unpack it just with this little phrase and say, postmodernity is a time when we are collectively skeptical of truth claims. Does this make sense? Like how many of you believe everything you uh, read in the newspaper anymore? Like we don't. Or the internet. This week, the main story in the news is how news is not believable anymore. Because of this thing called Pizzagate, if you if, who heard of it? Did you raise your hands? So if you know, if you don't, don't don't worry about it. It's not true anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but the but the the point is, we're skeptical of truth claims, and so when somebody says something, and and uh, this is like a 300-year-old problem in our culture. We thought the earth was flat because the Bible talks about the ends of the earth. And so the Catholic Church taught us for 16 centuries that the earth is flat. And then along comes some scientists. They tell us the earth is round. Now we don't know what to believe. We thought that the earth was the center of the solar system because in Psalm 112 it says from the rising sun to the setting of the sun, the Lord's name is to be praised. And if the sun is rising and setting, then the sun is moving, not the earth. So what's up with Galileo? And of course, now we know differently, but, but we thought we knew and we didn't. We thought we knew and we didn't. We thought we knew and we didn't. (laughs) So what can we know? And now, here's the thing. In a postmodern construct, the one thing you can know is your own experience. And then the one thing I'm most likely to believe that you tell me is what? Your own experience. And so, if I come to you with my my grand philosophy, it's less credible than when I come to you with my own story. I can say to you, you know, in 1976, I was depressed, lonely, discouraged, didn't know what I was gonna do with my life, and God spoke to me, I can say it. God, I was in a meeting similar to this one, the preacher pointed at me, God was speaking to me, I went out in the snow, I prayed, I said, God, I want to make knowing you the main goal of my life, and it changed everything for me. I changed my vocation, I changed my major, I changed states, because I changed states, I married the person I married. My whole life is different because of what happened in February 1976. You cannot believe me if you don't want to believe me, but it happened, right? And so, like, this is my experience, and what the shepherds shared, remember, they went back and they shared what they had what? Seen and heard, Boom. Experience credibility. And for many of us, we don't have experience with Jesus because Jesus has spoken and we didn't respond. And I can't know God as provider unless I'm giving. I won't. (laughs) I can't know God as healer unless I'm praying in the midst of my need. I can't know God as joy unless I'm at the end of my own circumstances, and there's no way out, and I prayed, I cried out, and God delivered me. Man, read Psalm 107. I know God because I was down, and now I'm up. That's how I know. And if you have no story, then you have, all you have is a text to offer people. And what makes the shepherds credible is not that they went to Bible study, What makes them credible is that God has moved in their life and they have seen and experienced something. What have you experienced? No experience, no message. (laughs) And let's not forget Mary, because what does it say about Mary? She treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, this word ponder is very interesting because uh, ponder means she's trying to bring together unrelated ideas. And these are very unrelated in other words, here's Mary. Uh, why are the first witnesses to the birth of God as a human a, a group of marginalized undesirables? This doesn't fit. Why, like if, if God's going to be born in the human flesh, why would God choose the womb of a woman as a poor teenager and she's pregnant before marriage? That doesn't fit. <laughs> Why is God's birthplace as a human, not a palace, not a house, not a hotel, not an inn, but a cave in a feeding trough? That doesn't fit. So she ponders. Do you ponder? What pondering means is is to let something sit so that it can ripen. This is very significant because when we read the scriptures, this is what we read. Mark chapter 4. A a sower went out. Do you know the story? A sower went out and did what? Sowed seed, right? Sower sowing seed. And then what does it say? And so some seed fell on the good soil, some of the rocky soil, et cetera, et cetera. But how many have sown seed in here? Who does any gardening? Anybody in the room? Any gardeners in the room? So like when you put a seed in the ground, do you know what happens immediately, at least from a visible perspective, what happens immediately? This is not a trick question. Nothing, nothing. The first time I planted a seed, I planted spinach when I was, uh, what's fourth grade, is that nine? I think it's nine. Yeah, I was nine years old. And I planted spinach in the backyard. And three days later, I went out, there's still nothing. And so I dug it up to see if anything was happening. And my mom came out and she said, "What what are you doing? I said, i got to see how they're doing. She says, oh, they're going to be fine. Just let them be. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. They're doing their thing, right? And, then, and they never grew. They never grew because I destroyed whatever that was happening there. And so what's the point? Here's the point. Look, things come into our lives. Boom, this experience. And we're like, we have this lust for closure, many of us in the room. I want to know today what God is teaching me uh, through this traffic accident. And so, like, I've got a blog about it today, or I've got, to, I've got to, you know, go to my small group and bring closure now. Can I just say to you, no, you don't. Like, ponder and let things ripen, because as you live with the tension of unresolved questions, that it, boy, good things come out of the tension. You know, and I wish I knew where it is, because I just thought of it now. Like you guys get the third summer of the day, so it gets longer as the day goes on. I just thought of this, but it's in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, "The word comes down sometimes like rain and sometimes like snow, and it's one of my favorite verses, because I live where it snows, and what's falling on the sky now will not be absorbed by the soil for nine months. It's there, but it won't be absorbed till later. And there are things that are preached and you're like this, that didn't mean anything to me today, don't worry about it. Let it sit, let it settle, it'll ripen later. And this brings us really to the close, the application, which is three questions. Does your hearing become listening? In other words, there's always noise. But hearing passes through. We have a phrase, in one ear, do you know the rest of it? Out the other. No. The call is to listen. Uh, When Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, Eugene Peterson translates that in his version of the Bible, the message. He says, are you listening? Are you really listening? Hard to listen. In order to listen, we need to want to receive what we're hearing. And it's challenging in our culture because we've got all these filters on, and we go, man, if this doesn't do me any good right now, then I'm not interested. That's very damaging, actually. Much of what we hear needs to sit with us and ripen sometimes for decades. So keep listening, keep listening, right? And then here's a the question. Does listening become pondering? Because pondering requires holding things inside us without resolution. Pondering requires holding things inside us without It requires viewing our hearts as soil and allowing things to sit there. And that's why kind of the soil care that I need to do. I need to allow unresolved things to sit in my heart. And and then when we ponder, when we listen and and we ponder, the final question is pondering become worship. And it's it's less of a question, more of a promise, actually. Because when we ponder, in due season, God gives us understanding. And when we have that understanding, we look back and we say, ah, ah, yes. Thank you, Lord, for what what you taught me there. Thank you. 40 years ago, but thank you. Well, when, I, when, when I was 14 years old, my dad would come home from his job as a school superintendent and he would play a game of horse with me. Do you know? In basketball. Do you guys know the game? Does anybody not know? The game? Well, forget it. I, I'm not going to explain it. If you don't know, I feel sorry for you, but whatever. Uh, so he would come and we play this game. It's not like no dribbling required. It's just... Very easy. And the reason we didn't play a game of, like, one-on-one basketball is because uh, my dad had a lung disease. And so he'd play horse, but even horse was super challenging for him at the age of 50. So he'd, come, like, he'd play, and after one game, I remember, this is the sound I remember when I was in junior high. <laughs> like labored breathing. After one game of horse, it's a... Rich, I gotta go inside, and then he'd go in, and I'd be like this as a 14-year-old. Man, what a bummer, he loves basketball so much. Too bad, and then I'd stay out there and I'd play play a little bit more. And And then he died when I was 17, and then 15 years later, after my dad's death, 1988, I wrote a poem for my dad on Father's Day. It was crazy because I thought I was done grieving and all that stuff. And, uh, but I was a father now, myself, and my daughter was four years old. And I wish I could read the poem to you, but I lost it because I'm not organized and so I don't have it. Uh, however, what was poignant to me as I, as I remember, as I wrote this poem, was I, wrote, to, I wrote, to, wrote it to my dad and I said, Dad, I thought when I was 14 that, that you just loved basketball. Now I know it wasn't basketball that you loved. It was me. Thank you. Thank you for showing me how to be a dad. He never got to meet my kids, but he taught me how to be a dad. I didn't learn that lesson when I was 14. <laughs> I didn't learn it when my dad died. I didn't learn it when my daughter was born. I didn't learn it really until I had a daughter and a son, and they were four and two and I was playing with a fake basketball and a garbage can with them. And I realized, oh, what my dad was doing was a sacrifice. Ponder and worship. What is God saying to you in the sounds of your life? We're going to come to this table in a minute. And this evening, my prayer for each one of us is that our, our response at the Lord's table would be a response to a sound that God brings to your mind maybe it's the sound of a parent saying I love you maybe it's the sound of a significant person in your life and a relationship maybe it's a painful sound but just sit with that sound for a minute and pray and say Jesus thank you that you speak in every sound give me ears to hear and thank you that all that i need to be shaped to be a voice of hope in this world is available because of your broken body and your shed blood i come and receive all that you are but first listen to the sounds that god has in your life because as jesus says let him who has ears what hear are you listening really listening father meet us here thank you for your table Thank you that when sounds uh, come into our lives, either of hope and healing, or sounds that are jarring and dissonant and intrusive, every sound leads us to you, either with gratitude or with need, either in perplexity or, or with thanksgiving for clarity. But we come to you now as strength, as forgiveness. Meet us at your table, we pray in the name of Christ.